tidily ho neighbor Rooney, as I was just trying out something different to see if it worked. Did it? I don't know. Welcome to History Pop, where we examine the intersection of pop culture and history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and I am so excited to share with you the third episode of our Victoria series. In the first and second episodes, we had a bit of a historical prologue to Victoria's reign and went over the events of the very first episode, which, come on, a lot happened. They squished over two years into an hour of TV. To explore some of the embellishments that the producers made for the show and ask questions as to why, what is it that we get out of this? What do we get when we tell the story one way instead of another? And in this episode, we'll do a similar thing, just for more of the show's years more broadly. I don't want to just give an overview of the most obvious departures of historical record, because that would be better saved as a reading assignment or a lecture in school. <laughs> but I want to talk about some of the more subtle changes that were made for dramatic effect or tension, or to make a character either more or less sympathetic to the audience. And, just as a reminder, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. Onward to fictionalized Victorian Britain. Welcome back. You know, one of the things that I love about Victoria is that I'm not sure how much planning goes into the show one or two seasons in advance. I mean, I get they probably can't work that way, even though it is a popular show and it technically, as of this recording, has not been renewed for a fourth season, but plans are in the works for it and it definitely hasn't been canceled. Daisy Goodwin, creator X and showrunner, has said that she would plan for the whole thing to be five seasons long since we, quote, couldn't do it after she dies, so I'll say that'd be five seasons, end quote. Also, spoilers, sweetie, uh, but she says that season four will be a bit of a humdinger. I love that word, humdinger. And that her viewers would need to go to Wikipedia to find out why. Do I tell you why, oh dear listener? Do I tell you? Yes. Yes, I do, because there are no spoilers in history. So, uh, in the first three seasons, they've covered Victoria's life from 1837 to 1851. Now, I wonder how they're going to cover 1851 to 1901 when she dies in only two seasons. But it seems to be that that is what Goodwin is planning, to mishmash 50 years into two seasons or 16 episodes, at least at how it's been doing with eight episodes a season. So at that pace, it would be early on in season four that Victoria's Annus Horribilis happens in 1861. And actually, one of the things that uh, people are kind of talking about, I know that uh, Jenna Louise Coleman has uh, stated something along these lines, is that they might do a similar tactic in Victoria as they've been doing in The Crown. Uh, so when the show ages out the main actors, they replace them. And so that is a possibility with Victoria, as uh, Jenna Coleman herself is like has said that she 
is now getting to that age where she is actually the same age as Victoria on the show, but it's going to be getting pretty ridiculous here in a little bit because, well, Jenna Louise Coleman has not had nine children, and she it's going to be more in terms of adding on in terms of prosthetics and lots and lots of makeup, and so it's just going to be more and more difficult for her to be able to actually portray Victoria as she ages. And so it is a possibility that probably in maybe part ways through season four i don't know uh but definitely season five if they do make it that long and they do plan to do the rest of victoria's reign that it's going to have to be a different actress who portrays her um but anyway so 1861 was a terrible year for victoria in march of that year her mother and lest we forget also albert's aunt victoire the duchess of kent died and Albert did help Victoria by taking over some of her duties to give her time to grieve. Then, uh, actually later on in that year, they went to visit Bertie, who, the Prince of Wales, uh, he'd been sent to Ireland to <laughs> do some military service and straighten the boy out. Uh, they'd found out that he had fallen in love with an Irish actress, as you do. Uh, so that was also a shock. Uh Two other royal relations, uh, King Pedro V and Prince Ferdinand of Portugal, died of typhoid fever. Uh, and even though he had been sick and had massive stomach pains, Albert had uh, gone to go and talk to Bertie about the Irish actress Nellie Clifton. Um, that uh, there had been rumors that were spreading about the two of them. And so uh, Albert and Victoria both felt that this was unbecoming of a Prince of Wales to carry on with an Irish actress in a very public manner and so Albert went to uh, school to go and talk with him about this and this is actually something that Victoria blames Bertie for uh, which we'll talk about here in a little bit but there's also the Trent affair because lest we forget America was in the midst of a civil war in 1861, when the Union detained uh, UK ships and dragged Confederate diplomats from them. The two men, the two Confederate diplomats, James Murray Mason and John Slidell, were on their way to Europe to seek democ uh, democratic diplomatic recognition of the Confederacy as a sovereign nation. Now, the Brits were pissed because these were UK ships, and so was the Union. Um, another war threatened between the Union and the UK. Lincoln? president at the time did not want to have another war to deal with and long story short he had them released but didn't initially apologize um so the uk was initially going to react very harshly to the union over this especially lord palmerston the foreign secretary who will meet in season three but who had historically been around the whole time which is another one of the reasons why i'm like how much of this show is planned in advance palmerston was pissed because, among other reasons, he'd gotten a verbal agreement from Charles Francis Adams Sr., who was the son of John Quincy Adams, uh, and he was the United States minister to the UK during the Civil War. Adams was the guy who was blocking the diplomatic mission that the Confederacy had sent. I mean, the, the U.S. had already been acknowledged as a sovereign nation by the UK uh, earlier, obviously, and so he was trying to not make the Brits anti-Confederate, but to keep them at a neutral place. So if they didn't actually uh, receive the diplomats of the Confederacy and they didn't acknowledge them as a sovereign power, then they weren't going to be acknowledged as such on the international stage. Uh, so keeping them neutral was a way of 
keeping them and their power and their legitimacy as a government contained. Uh, so Charles Francis Adams Sr., uh, it was his mission then to keep the Brits neutral. Uh, so that way they wouldn't recognize the Confederacy as a nation and British ships wouldn't be messed about with by American ships. And then here they are messing with British ships. Uh, Palmerston, uh, there's a quote from him saying, quote, I don't know whether you are going to stand this, he emphatically stated to an emergency cabinet meeting and threw his hat on the table, but I'll be damned if I do. Victoria had Albert look into the matter further. And he helped to soften the British position. Basically, even if we don't agree with them, if you let them go and apologize, we'll forgive you. Which worked. Uh, the Union released the diplomats and actually did apologize. And it also helped that Abraham Lincoln announced that he would enact the Emancipation Proclamation, which, even though initially the British felt that this would drive enslaved people who were still in the South to rebellion, by the end of 1862, the urge of European powers to wade into this particular minefield waned. Uh, so we have all of that. We've got the Trent Affair. We've got the Birdie thing. We've got her mom dying. We've got other uh, prominent monarchs dying in the beginning of 1861. So this was a super rough year. And then to top it all off, poor Prince Albert himself died in December, uh, having been diagnosed himself with typhoid fever. Victoria never recovered from the grief of his death. She wore black for the rest of her life. She had his rooms kept exactly how they were uh, and had servants bringing clean linen and hot water every day just as they would have had he been alive. So that, friends, was Victoria's Annus Horribilis, 1861. That'll most likely come early in season four of Victoria, and I'm not sure how exactly time will break down in the coming seasons. Another major conflict that I hope we'll see are the Opium Wars. Now, when I say major, I don't really mean major to England. All of the fighting happened in China, and there really wasn't much of an impact for the everyday English person, but everyday life in China changed greatly. The first of the Opium Wars, because there are two of them, uh, was 1839 to 1842, so we should have already seen it, but we haven't. When the show does focus on an international conflict, it's been more of the wars in the Middle East, such as the Anglo-Afghan War, which is contemporaneous with the first Opium War. We also see the potato blight in Ireland and hear about some of the atrocities of slave traders in Africa. We also see bits of the fear of the widespread revolutions of 1848, which swept across the continent but didn't really touch Britain. As Victoria said in the show, she never really worried about it as, quote, the British aren't a revolutionary people. I don't know, Charles I may disagree on that point. But it's because of the revolutions that another major character appears. And once again, I wonder exactly how much was planned in advance. Princess Theodora of Leinigan, who I briefly talked about in the first Victoria cast. She's Victoria's older half-sister from Victoire's first marriage. The show would have you believe that Victoria, and nay, everyone in the royal family, had forgotten that she even existed, which simply isn't true. Victoria and Theodora had maintained an active correspondence after Theodora left Kensington to marry Ernst, Prince of Hohenlohe-Langenberg, in 1828. Victoria was devoted to Theodora, who for many years had been one of her only companions, and Theodora absolutely loved Victoria in return. She visited Britain whenever she could, and Victoria arranged to have allowances of 300 pounds to be given to Theodora at various visits. There's no way that Theodora was forgotten by Victoria at all, so why does this show present the relationship this way? First, and I think the most important reason, 
is that Victoria's connection to Theodora was largely ignored because it helps to isolate Victoria in her early years in the viewer's eyes. It makes her childhood seem even more lonely, and to show how much more courageous Victoria is because of the trying circumstances of her childhood. Now, this isn't to say that her childhood didn't suck hard, because it did, as I mentioned in the first episode, but that by not including Theodora or even mentioning Theodora from the beginning, it sets us up to see Victoria as even more lonely, and thus even more triumphant when she ascends the throne. Secondly, it makes her connection to Albert, who the show does a great job with, even more vibrant. By reducing the number of attachments that Victoria has with others, we can concentrate on her romantic entanglements even more. Her strong love connection with Albert is even more important as it's one of the only healthy-ish relationships that we see her have. Thirdly, once we do get to see Theodora, she takes away from the relationship with Albert and some of the children. She's a pseudo-antagonist, and it honestly seems like she's angling to seduce Albert away from Victoria, or Victoria away from Albert, so she can step in and be the hero, the rescuer. I honestly felt like she was some sort of imposter or pretender who impersonated Theodora, so that she could scam the family out of a bit of wealth for herself, but so far, that's not how she is. And, but the show has entirely manipulated the historical Theodora to something unrecognizable. It seems the showrunners felt that there needed to be some more interpersonal drama interjected into the show for some reason, and put Theodora in to satisfy that. The audience, at least I did, grows to hate her over the course of the season, and gives us a chance to root once more for Victoria and Albert as a couple, uh, even though they've been working through some issues uh, with Victoria feeling unattractive, and Albert feeling like he wasn't respected in their marriage, and then not respecting Victoria, and it was just a whole to use the words of Daisy Goodman, a humdinger. So some of the other events the show embellishes, stretching back to the beginning of the series, are the Bedchamber Crisis of 1839, in which Victoria successfully protested a change in government by not allowing Sir Robert Peel, the leader of the Conservative Party, to choose some of her ladies of the bedchamber. See, the Prime Minister, Victoria's beloved Lord M, was a Whig, and Victoria was more loyal to the Whig Party, especially early on and then later on in her reign. He only had a small majority in the Commons, and felt that he should resign in favor of a Tory government. Victoria asked the well-respected Duke of Wellington to form a Conservative government, and he, smartly, refused. Then she asked Sir Robert Peel to lead a Tory government, and he only agreed if she would dismiss some of her ladies of the bedchamber. He never wanted to completely replace her ladies, who were for the most part wives of Whig politicians. He felt that she shouldn't take sides in government, and he only agreed to form a Tory government as its prime minister if she would allow a better balance in her bedchamber. I feel another important thing that we need to talk about, especially with how it's represented in the show, are the Chartists. In Victoria, we see the Chartists as a largely peaceful group who wanted to march and present their charter, which had been ignored by Parliament in 1838 for serious consideration. In 1839, once again early in the reign, a group of about 10,000 Chartists marched on Newport, hence it being called the Newport Rising. The Charter, or People's Charter of 1838, called for universal suffrage for all men above the age of 21, secret elections, well, ballots, um, and salaries for MPs so that they could be men of any station, not just wealthy men who could afford not to work for months at a time. Their protest failed, and troops were actually deployed against them, killing at least 22 Chartists. Now, in the show, 
Victoria is shown to be a merciful queen that instead of having the captured leaders executed by hanging, drawing, and quartering, which is the traditional punishment for treason, she has them exiled to Australia. Um, well, in real life, they were sent to Australia instead of to a horrific death. Also, being transported to Australia wasn't necessarily better. I mean, you had a chance at life, but it also was going to be an incredibly rough one. Um... So, while they were actually sent to Australia, this had nothing to do with Victoria. So we manipulate the history a bit to show Victoria not quite an ally of the everyday person, but not quite an autocrat either. She, in the show, was moved to exile them by the fact that her headdresser's nephew was one of the men condemned to die, which was naturally distressing to said Mrs. Jenkins. The show's interesting in that it tries to make Victoria a friend of the common people, when, honestly... Albert really worked hard to try to make their lives better. When the Chartists make another appearance in Victoria in 1848, we see them marching on Parliament to present their petition, which supposedly had six million signatures on it. They planned to be peaceful, and the military was waiting to stop them from crossing the Thames into Westminster. And I'm reasonably sure that while there were women who were important to the cause, there wasn't actually one present to present the Charter to Parliament. Once again, the show was playing with history a bit, to make the Chartists seem like more of an egalitarian organization than they actually were. Thinking about, like, the French Revolution, the French Revolution was totally happy to let women, you know, uh, help out and to document things and to keep the uh, clothes of the uh, revolutionaries clean and take care of things at home, etc., etc. But when women actually tried to be like, hey, no, we need to have rights as well, they're like, ha, 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 no. Um... So it reminds me of that a bit. And so by uh, showing the Chartists as a little bit more of an egalitarian organization, it's much more of a modern spin on it. Uh, they weren't necessarily as egalitarian as they're shown in the show. If you're a white man, the Chartists were totes for making sure you could vote and have rights and stuff. Anyone else? Bugger off. By including a woman and a black man as prominent members of the Chartists, it makes the movement to be more empathetic to modern viewers. We feel worse for them when they fail or have setbacks, and we cheer more for them when they succeed. This is one of those instances that really show how much a work is influenced by the period in which it's created. I wholeheartedly believe that a work is reflective of the beliefs of the person and people who created it, as much as it is reflective of the time period in which it's created. Uh, this is one of those instances. Unless you're bigoted, you probably think that people of all creeds, genders, and races are equally deserving respect simply because we're all human beings. And that shows in these little details that the show throws in with the character who actually gets an audience with Victoria and then also becomes one of her uh, servants to explain to her that the Chartists don't mean any harm to her and her family. They just want rights. And remember a little bit about how we talked about coffee shops in the last episode? They, the Chartists, of course, had some secretish meetings, but largely they met in coffee houses and pubs or public houses to hear the Charter and other important documents read out loud, to debate the merits of those documents, and to spread the word about workers' rights. Apparently, and understandably, the Chartists weren't fans of British imperialism and of the First Opium War in specific. Now, as I mentioned, the Opium Wars haven't been talked about in the show yet, but there is a possibility of a mention in the coming season. Basically, the First and Second Opium Wars could be subtitled How Britain Are a Bunch of Jerks Who Try to Take Over Other People's Countries, which is pretty much the 19th century. Uh, so prior to the Opium Wars, 
China was kind of a powerhouse in the world. They'd been a solid empire for over a millennia and were the makers of many fine goods that the rest of the world was super keen to get their grubby mitts on. It's one of the reasons why Spain was really excited to find out that the New World had a crap ton of silver they could exploit the indigenous people to mine or refine for them, because China was super self-sufficient and didn't feel like trading for the goods that the West made, because they just weren't as good as what China made for itself. But you know what China was a big fan of? Silver. So Spain soon exploited the New World for silver to trade with China for all those sweet, sweet Chinese goods. Eventually, Britain got in on this trade too, and ended up super unhappy since the trade with China was super lopsided. The Chinese only let the English trade at the southern port of Canton, where they could actively control all the things coming in and out of the empire. The Brits started to grow lots of opium in India to smuggle secretly into China in hopes that people would get addicted and then they'd have to buy more and more and more and more to satisfy the addiction. Like the jerks they are. And of course, people did get addicted to opium because it's a super easy thing and we have a major opioid crisis right now. Um, and China tried to stop it. Uh, but the people in charge of the ports were easily bribed to allow the opium in. The emperor refused to legalize opium and sent an official to ask Victoria to please stop sending opium into China because it is killing my people and I don't like it. Eventually, the official confiscated the opium uh, at the port of Canton and set up a blockade to stop British ships from actually getting into the harbor. And the Brits were super pissed because how dare you try to stop our free trade? And then they legit sent the navy to go and attack the port. The Chinese ended up surrendering in 1842 just to make the pain stop, and they signed the Treaty of Nanking, and the pain continued. Uh, because this treaty gave the British rights to traipse all over with no consequences, uh, they got extraterritoriality, which means that even if a British person does something in China against Chinese law, it doesn't matter, because they're British, and they're tied to British law. The treaty also opened up more ports, and is how the Brits ended up with Hong Kong, which was eventually given back to the Chinese in 1997. So yeah, while it didn't really make waves in Britain, it was super important for China. So I hope we get to see at least a mention of the Second Opium War in Season 4, especially as it fits in the timeline so well, and would also happen early in the season, as it was from 1856 to 1860. Now, one last major theme that I want to talk about for this episode is Prince Albert himself. The series does a great job of showing how in some way he and Victoria are opposites, where she is passionate and sometimes throws temper tantrums and literally throws things to try to get her way. He performed more calm uh, behaviors and rationality. And this is actually true to the historical record. In her own diaries, Victoria talks about how she threw and broke things from time to time when she got super mad. Theirs was an interesting marriage that was unusual in that, well, she was the sovereign and he was the consort. Men, generally, historically, have a harder time in that role because men in Christian households are supposed to be the head of the family and women were to be subordinate to them and then the children subordinate to both. So there's a hierarchy to these things and Victoria and Albert's relationship disrupted that a bit, which is one of the reasons why they worked hard to present the public image of blissful domesticity. Behind closed doors, Victoria and Albert generally worked as equals and she came to rely on him for his advice and his work ethic. And indeed, behind those doors, they generally functioned as expected of any Victorian family. Famously, he once locked the door and refused to open it until Victoria entreated him as his wife, not ordered him as his queen. He would chide her and give her the silent treatment and then write her letters addressed as Dear Child, explaining why she was wrong. 
He is quoted as saying, quote, I am very happy and contented, but the difficulty in filling my place with the proper dignity is that I am only the husband, not the master in the house, end quote. Eventually, though, he did come to run the queen's household and other matters for her. He wanted to, quote, be the natural head of the family, superintendent of her household, manager of her private affairs, her sole confidential advisor in politics, and only assistant in her communications with the officers of the government, her private secretary and permanent minister, end quote. Now, you remember how in the last cast uh, that we talked about how Victoria swore to always meet her ministers alone? She did that until she married Albert. Then he was always there, or he met with them alone. Behind the scenes, even though he was eventually given the title of Prince Consort, he was acting very much the king. One thing the show does really well is to let the audience see how much Albert really did want power, and to be seen as more than a house husband. He took advantage of her many, many pregnancies to chip more and more of her duties away, in the name of helping her. One historian, who I've quoted here before, says that... Uh, we're all too nice to Albert, that he wasn't as great as people think, and that while he was wonderful in some ways, Albert was also manipulatively ambitious and did take advantage of Victoria's pregnancies for his own gain. Uh, Victoria regularly suffered from postpartum depression, which made it easy for Albert to step in and make it look like he was just being helpful. By baby number seven, Lucy Worsey said at a history festival, Victoria realized that she had had enough children. But Albert kept those babies coming, and that's because he could see that while she was busy with that, he could get on with making himself king in all but name, taking over some of her duties, taking over some of her power. She continued on uh, at, in her speech saying that, quote, I think he should have been fulfilling the more traditional role of a queen or a princess in this relationship, which was to single-mindedly support his spouse, which he didn't do, end quote. Worsley continued on to say that Albert gets a pass generally because he did have a lot of qualities that historians over the years have tended to admire. He was a planner, a thinker, and really smart. But Victoria had the emotional intelligence. A great example of, uh, of that was in their response to the Crimean War. Albert wrote 50 volumes of advice. 50 volumes of well-thought-out and uh, planned advice to the government. And of course, they promptly ignored him. Victoria, though, wrote letters to the troops to thank them for their sacrifice, which worked wonders. And so Vic, uh, Albert gets a pass, basically, from historians, because in a lot of ways, uh, they represent him as, especially with how the, the historians who actually do tend to gravitate towards studying Albert and the Victorian reign, uh, he gets a pass because they're, he's kind of represented as how a lot of those historians want to be. They want to be rational. They want to be scientific. They want to be uh, really thoughtful and careful in their endeavors. And that is how Albert is portrayed in a lot of different histories. Um, but while, of course, Victoria and Albert had their struggles, just like any marriage does, they were utterly devoted to one another and both loved the retreat that Albert created for them and their family at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, which is just off the southern coast of England. Now, the show makes it seem like it was too ornate or continental for Victoria, which gives it a bit of dramatic tension between the couple. Historically, though, Victoria loved it just as much as Albert did, once writing to their eldest daughter, I long for our cheerful and unpalace-like rooms at Osborne. She wasn't very much a fan of the Brighton Pavilion, which was built by the then Prince Regent, who became George IV, in a very oriental style, which is legit what it's called, and it's a mishmash of Indian and Chinese influences. 
in a very Marie Antoinette-like move, Albert had a Swiss cottage installed on the grounds of Osborne House of the Isle of Wight, where the children learned how to live like regular people, à la petite trianon at Versailles. And I'm not kidding, they had a legit cottage from Switzerland, torn down and shipped, and then later reassembled on the Isle of Wight. Uh, each of the royal brood had a bit of garden that they tended to themselves, and their, when their vegetables ripened, they sold them to their father to learn the basis of economics. They also learned how to cook and clean for themselves at Osborne and at the Little Swiss Cottage, which Victoria and Albert thought was important to add to their education. Albert was, at the time especially, seen as an attentive and loving parent, and he took a keen interest in his children's education. His eldest daughter, Vicky, and we do see this in the show, was especially academically talented like her father, who in turn was very fond of and impressed with her. Bertie, their eldest son, didn't take to his lessons as well as Vicky did, as we do see in the show as well, and that provided a bit of disappointment for Albert, who wanted his children to be just as well educated as future kings and queens should be. And as in the show, Albert devised some of the curriculum himself, and would also give children their lessons. His love of education and learning extended outside the royal nursery. He was a patron and president of the Society of Arts, Society for the Improvement of the Condition of the Laboring Classes, the Royal Photographic Society, and was heavily involved in the abolitionist movement. In England, slavery had been outlawed since 1833 and was fully enforced in 1838, but the Brits wanted to end slavery worldwide and the slave trade itself. Albert gave a speech at a meeting for the Society for the Extinction of the Slave Trade in 1840, of which he was also president, that was quite successful. He became known as a man of culture, taste, and magnanimity, especially after the unequivocal success of the Great Exhibition of 1851, which was largely due to his vision and blood and sweat and tears we do see Albert struggle to pull it off in the show, and he does magnificently in the face of all those who doubted him and his vision to show off British engineering and grit to the world. And we'll talk more in the next episode of History Pop about some of the new inclusions for the show in the third season. The beautiful and sweet but very sad Sophie, the Duchess of Monmouth, the long-serving Foreign Secretary Lord Palmerston and his scandalous but incredibly loving marriage, and a bit more of Victoria's relationship with Ireland. In this episode, dear listeners, your exit ticket question is, based on what you already know and what you've seen in the show and what you've just heard here, what should Albert's legacy be? What's the most important thing that he did? Why? Be sure to tag it HP exit ticket hashtag on Twitter or to leave a comment below if you're listening from my website. Until next time, stay tuned, stay well, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Courtney for History Pop signing off. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herbert. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit production.